I'm Aaron Ross Powell, and this is Reimagining Liberty, a show about the emancipatory and cosmopolitan case for radical liberty. Today's episode begins with a discussion of how border militarization and foreign intervention create a feedback loop of increasing violence and impositions on freedom. And it then takes those lessons and applies them more broadly to the question of how we should approach politics and public policy, and the ways our thinking can get tripped up by overinvestment and narrow paths to change. My guest is Nathan Goodman, a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Economics at New York University. His research focuses on defense and peace economics, self-governance, institutions, and public choice. I found this to be a fascinating and eye-opening conversation, and I hope you'll learn as much from it as I did. And if you enjoy it, stick around until the end for information on how you can become a Reimagining Liberty supporter, get all episodes two weeks early, and join our Discord community to discuss these ideas with me and your fellow listeners. You've written about the way border militarization and foreign intervention create a feedback loop, which is fascinating enough as it is, but it also helps us understand some of the ways I think libertarians can go wrong in applying their principles to broader questions of liberty and policy. I want to get to that, but it's probably helpful for us to start narrow and then analogize from there. So what is this border militarization, foreign intervention feedback loop? So the basic idea is that um, governments engage in a variety of attempts to control people. And some of those attempts to control people take the form of foreign intervention, where the government is attempting to intervene upon a foreign population in order to achieve some sets of goals. And so they might attempt to do this through warfare, or they might attempt to do this through some other form of soft power. Um, But in order to do this, they need to develop some set of coercive capabilities. The same sort of thing is happening along the border, right? The government is making a set of choices, or rather government officials are making a set of choices about how they are going to attempt to stop people from moving across the border who the government does not want to move, so unauthorized migrants, and how the government is going to attempt to stop individuals from transporting contraband that the government does not want to see transported, such as illicit drugs. And in each of these cases, they the individuals who are making these political decisions have to decide among a set of means to achieve their desired policy ends. And when they cultivate some set of means, um, they're going to cultivate a stock of physical capital and human capital. So for example, when you're carrying out a foreign intervention, you're going to stock up on various forms of weaponry, on surveillance equipment, in, in the contemporary war on terror, for example, we saw the development of unmanned aerial vehicles or drones that were used for both surveillance and uh, direct military violence and bombing. Um, and those tools can then be used by other officials for purposes of social control. So if the government increases the supply of unmanned aerial vehicles or drones, then the relative price of using drones for coercive purposes falls, not just for military officials, but for other potential users of this hardware. So somebody who's working for the Border Patrol and is making a decision about which set of techniques should I use to try to restrict immigration, well, there's a range of techniques they could use. They could decide, I'm going to look through the books of companies to check whether they're employing unauthorized migrants, or they could decide, I'm going to have drones fly along the U.S.-Mexico border, and these drones are going to surveil people, both prospective migrants or smugglers and just ordinary people who are uh, living their lives uh, within the confines of the law within those same border regions. And if there's a lot of drones developed, then the relative price of using drones falls. So as physical capital is developed for coercive purposes through military intervention, there's going to be a temptation to use it for domestic law enforcement purposes, including purposes related to border security. Let me just ask a clarifying question. When you say use it and you say the price of using it comes down, do you mean that you know we've we've conducted military operations in the Middle East and as part of that, we made a bunch of drones, 
And now we've finished those operations. The drones are sitting in a warehouse in the US or on a military base somewhere. And so the Border Patrol is like, hey, these these particular drones are available. I'm going to use them. Or is it that – is this more of like a like an innovation story of, you know, like the, the price of uh, processors become cheaper and faster as we pump more innovation into them? And so if you pump innovation into drones, then drones become cheaper and faster. And so the Border Patrol is buying other drones that are just better than they would have been a few years ago if the military hadn't been pumping money in. So I'd say it's a story of sort of both and. So there are direct transfers um, or lending of surplus military equipment that happens, and not just with drones. This type of lending has occurred since the um, 1980s, at least, and actually earlier than that. So, for example, uh, back in the early first half of the 20th century, there were there was lending of like fixed wing aircraft from the U.S. military to the Border Patrol. And so some of it is there's this hardware that the military already has, and it's being either lent or transferred to the Border Patrol or to other domestic law enforcement agencies. And some of it is we now have both an increase in the uh, quality and uh, sort of know-how to produce these tools, and we have defense contractors with direct ties to political decision makers. So the other thing is that it's not as though political decision makers are just going into the marketplace to shop around. They're also thinking about who they have relationships with. Congress has a role in directly deciding uh, what's going to be budgeted for. And so congressional decision makers are likely to be influenced by who they have ties to. So if Boeing or Lockheed or General Atomics or any of these firms uh, forms ties with people on the Homeland Security Committee in Congress, then that's going to influence decision-making. So there's a range of things that are happening, which includes relationship building, a stock of existing physical capital that can be transferred, um, as well as uh, just it being easier to produce these things. So all of these processes are happening simultaneously and pushing in roughly the same direction. Is there a cross-pollination, too, in the sense that you have a military career, leave it, and join the Border Patrol? Um, or you, you know, you've worked in some area, and so you're just... You know, it's the the same as it's always struck during the 2009 housing crisis, which was my first year working in a DC think tank. Um, how every scholar has their area of expertise. You had the housing guy, you had the the health guy, you had the trade guy, and all of them had a story of how their policy area was the one that explained the financial crisis. You know, uh, because it's just like when when that's what you know, you are able to look for things that fit in with what you know. Uh, so, is there is that cross pollination part of it too? Yeah. So I think that's exactly right, and part of this is, as you say, sort of what types of opportunities people are alert to. Right, you're going to be alert to opportunities that. Uh, fit in with your existing knowledge. And there's sort of cultivation of specialized skills, what economists would call human capital. And so when people engage in foreign intervention, they're going to learn and acquire some set of skills, skills largely related to coercive and violent social control through that foreign intervention. And that's sort of at the roots of SWAT teams within American domestic policing, right? Those were invented in LA by uh, military veterans, specifically a veteran, one of the main people was a veteran of the Vietnam War who was involved in an elite force recon unit. Um, And that same type of human capital transfer has happened within the Border Patrol. So during the 1980s, the Border Patrol founded its sort of top SWAT team, which is called BORTAC, or the Border Patrol Tactical Unit. And that was formed in response to riots at immigration and naturalization service facilities. Um, But has since been used for a wide range of different types of border security operations, as well as some domestic law enforcement operations. So some of the people who were dragging Black Lives Matter protesters into vans in Portland, outside the federal courthouse, for example, were BORTAC uh, officials, because BORTAC is now part of the Department of Homeland Security. And so if the Federal Protective Service is going to go do domestic law enforcement stuff, even unrelated to border security in any formal way, they can draw on the resources of others within Homeland Security, which will include BORTAC. And so this gets at some of the mission creep elements, which I think is a key part of this feedback loop story is 
any set of coercive tools you develop, any set of coercive tools you develop can then be redeployed for coercive projects other than what you've initially developed them for. So you might say, oh, we've got a really noble mission here that really warrants the use of coercion, and then later find that it's being redeployed for some coercive purpose that you think is outside the bounds of what government should be using that type of coercion for. Does this mean then that decision-making, say, by the Border Patrol on the the strategies and tactics that they're going to use is is largely bottom up because so the military which is undertaking these foreign interventions and using its its drones say and those coercive tools is being directed by the the president who has a certain set of powers over the military and they're they're doing it at his orders whereas the border patrol is you know part of the executive branch but it's been set out by legal rules being articulated by you know, agencies and Congress and so on. And so it would seem like, you know, if I'm just saying like, hey, Border Patrol, I used a drone over here. Now I'm going to use it over here is like sidestepping a potential chain of command. So why isn't this just that the the people at the top say like, well, I don't care if you're really good at drones. That's not the most useful thing or that's not what we do over here. So I think part of it is that the um, decision-making power is vested in a few different types of places. So there's some discretionary power in the hands of the president to decide top-level things or of the president's appointees to decide top-level things. There's some discretionary power that rests in Congress. So some of these uh, drone acquisitions, for example, are not decided internally to Border Patrol. They're directly earmarked within budget bills, for example. And so they're the people with the biggest role in decision-making are going to be people on, say, the House Homeland Security Committee or something, right? But there also is some degree of autonomy related to acquisitions that Border Patrol officials have. And one of the sort of main places where we see a lot of these decisions being made is in these large trade shows called Border Security Expos. And so these happen annually, and there's a mix of uh, private sector people from these defense contractors and other firms that are producing tools that would be useful for border security, whether that's drones or trucks or body armor or surveillance towers or anything else. Um, And then officials from various parts of the public sector. And in addition to the sort of large exposition hall and the public speeches, by defense contractors and public officials. There also are various social events. So an annual golf game, a shooting range day. And at least when I last checked the prices for these events, which I haven't, I didn't check for this year's, but a couple years back, I looked at the prices and I saw that there was discounted uh, price for public sector officials. So the price to go to some of these social events, if you're from a private firm is a lot higher than if you're from a, um, public sector would make sense because the private sector people are paying largely to get access to an audience that they're trying to sell these wares to. Um, and so I think of it as somewhat similar to how bars catering to a largely heterosexual audience will often charge a higher cover charge for men than for women. Um, and so when I, when I mentioned this on another podcast, uh, the host Uh, decided to call it Raytheon Ladies' Night, which I think is a fairly apt description of how some of these things work. But basically, they're forming these social ties, and that lowers the transaction costs of exchanges between public sector and private sector officials in a way that sort of greases the wheels of cronyism. I I will say just, I worked when I was working in D.C. I was near the convention center, and that was where the AUSA... um, Convention, which is the big defense contractors plus you know members of the military and so forth get together and it was it was surreal every year just how huge it is and how much it looks like any other trade show when it's just people buying and selling weapons of war um it it is these things are odd and they're they're a little bit distressing when you're, you know, standing in the metro and just lined up with all of these people who are desperately trying to convince, you know, or the the metro stations fill up with ads for 
drones or fighter jets or bombs or surveillance equipment. And you're just like, oh, like there are people who are like who would buy this because they saw an ad. You know, it's it's a weird situation. Absolutely. It's a, it's a very strange way to make decisions that affect people's basic liberties and a bit and who's going to live or die. So then what is I guess what's the problem with this feedback loop? Because one way of looking at it is we've gone we've done a foreign intervention we've developed we've developed tools for it or brought down the price or created innovation we've learned a bunch of things and now in this other area we can say well because of my because of the knowledge i built up because of the human capital and the physical capital i know that these tools actually work right like i have i have expertise just like you know you go you go to a doctor who has built up expertise in medicine because you think even if you come along with something new that he hasn't seen before he's going to know how to apply those tools in a way that, you know, the Dr. Nick from the Simpsons probably isn't. Um, so what's, I mean, what's the big deal as long as these tools are the right ones for the job? So I think one big difference is sort of the nature of who's making the decisions and who's affected. So when you're making a deal with a doctor, that's a fairly straightforward, mutually beneficial exchange. Your health is improved and uh, the doctor gets paid. And there's potential problems insofar as the doctor's specialized knowledge means that there might be an asymmetric information problem and the doctor has some capacity to rip you off. Uh, but in general, the doctor having more skills means that they can treat you better and that benefits you and benefits the doctor. Gains from trade occur. In this case, there's gains from trade between the decision makers who have some set of coercive goals and the uh, defense contractors or the people who participated in the military intervention and acquired skills. Um, but remember that their goals are to coerce other people. And so because their goals are to coerce other people, there's some set of people whose uh, plans and projects and lives are going to be directly coercively interfered with. And so that's a large-scale negative externality, as well as potentially a violation of liberal principles, um, that I think we should worry about the cultivation of these ways of relating to uh, other people. The other, the other thing that I think is a potential problem, even for people who, I, I think listeners to this show will largely agree with a general presumption against coercion, but where it also becomes potentially problematic for people who might think coercion is appropriate in this case, say people who say, well, we really need strong border security, is that you might think coercion is appropriate in one setting, but not in another. So maybe you thought the Vietnam War was necessary to stop uh, communism or something, but you think you would prefer community policing that's more peaceful in a domestic context. And so the cultivation of SWAT teams uses tools that you thought were appropriate for the Vietnam War but you think are inappropriate for a lot of domestic policing. And so that's the sort of thing that we potentially see here. Similarly with border patrol, we see the use of drones on the border and there might be some people who say, well, that's really important. That's a security issue. I'm for that. But then the border patrol lends out those drones to local police departments and we see them used to resolve like a livestock dispute. And you might say, well, that, that I don't like. I don't want that type of uh, violation of privacy. So one thing is just because these are coercive tools or tools that undermine some set of civil liberties, um, people might be okay with them being used in one narrow arena, but think that applying them more broadly is harmful. And so the fact that they're likely to be redeployed uh, potentially worries people because of the ethical presumptions people may have around their use. This raises a lot of really interesting issues. And so, I mean, let me guess kind of think out loud for a second about them which is as you said this it it sounds like there's the the criticism of like a kantian categorical imperative the the rule right um is one of the criticisms of it is that whether the rule obtains in a given situation really just comes down to analogies like is this situation analogous to that situation or not and given that no two situations are identical, there's always going to be differences between them in some way, even just in time, then really the, the application of the rule comes down to which differences you think are salient and which differences you think aren't. Uh, 
And it seems like something then similar here is going on, which is what you're saying is the foreign intervention is in meaningful ways, like the foreign intervention where coercion is the right choice and the restricting of liberty is the right thing to do, um, is disanalogous to border crossings. But someone else could say, no, the foreign intervention is protecting the homeland right like we they might be invading us or we might be preventing them from invading someone else or you know whatever it is and then the the border thing is protecting the homeland from invaders the, these people sneaking across the border are invading our country because they're not supposed to be here and so they're they're perfectly analogous which is why coercion is the right thing and so i guess the question is is this are you effectively sneaking libertarianism in by the back door here by just saying that libertarianism, libertarian theory is is simply the way that we distinguish analogous from non-analogous situations. So I don't think that's what we're doing in the paper, um, in part because I don't think the paper itself is making statements about which are the appropriate domains. Like, I think that these tools are inappropriate in both foreign intervention and uh, border security contexts, for example. I think that they're very dangerous tools to wield. But I think that what this sort of spread of techniques of social control shows us is that you're going to have a hard time confining them to any specific arena. And so for somebody who says these tools are really appropriate and are the tools I would like to use in a lot of different contexts, that might be something that's not all that troubling, right? Like if somebody just thinks, yeah, I like the use of high-tech surveillance. I like the use of militarized social control. I think violence is good, right? Like if that's someone's normative view um, across a wide range of arenas, I probably have relatively little I can say other than directly challenging them on ethical views or maybe teasing out some more of the consequences of those forms of violence um, that could be convincing. But if someone says, uh, border security is an exceptional arena. We need things to be done there. Then I can say something to the effect of, okay, well, under at least current institutional arrangements, the drones that you're okay with using on the border get lent out to domestic law enforcement agencies of a variety of types to resolve things like ranching disputes, for example, or to surveil Black Lives Matter protesters or to, get, to be used for a wide range of things. The Electronic Frontier Foundation has at various times filed Freedom of Information Act requests and gotten information on how these uh, Customs and Border Protection drones are used, who they're lent out to. Um, and maybe someone's fine with all of those uses. In all likelihood, someone is going to be fine with some of them and find others objectionable. Um, and similarly, there are probably some people who uh, think that it's uh, good to do this sort of stuff on the border of between the U.S. and Mexico, but who think that border security abroad, uh, that other countries' border security arrangements aren't really the U.S.'s business. So someone who's like a national conservative or a paleoconservative, for example, might hold that sort of view. And so they might be very comfortable with what BORTAC does on the U.S.-Mexico border, but think that BORTAC going abroad to train uh, foreign um, forces, right? Like BORTAC, for example, was an active participant in U.S. nation-building efforts in Iraq. And so somebody who takes the sort of paleoconservative position that U.S. border security efforts are good and the Iraq war was bad is going to be comfortable with one of those things and not the other. And so the fact that existing political arrangements are going to keep uh, deploying and redeploying um, social control innovations, I think, presents a reason for people to potentially pause and reconsider um, how comfortable they are with using and developing these systems of social control in contexts that they might, if looked at as an isolated incident, think, yes, this is good. Um, my own view is a libertarian view, and so my own view is uncomfortable with this in all of these contexts, and so that definitely colors my analysis. But I think that this descriptive analysis of how these techniques of social control get deployed and redeployed um, has potential implications for people who hold different normative views because it suggests that whatever use you're comfortable with 
is likely to then be redeployed potentially in arenas someone is uncomfortable with, though some people might be comfortable with a lot of the ways in which it's deployed. This has almost a Michael Walter spheres of justice flavor to it of that within certain the what is permissible, just desirable within a given sphere might differ from a different sphere. And the problem we run into is when the borders between those spheres break down. And so power or influence in one sphere bleeds unjustly um, or ill-advisedly into another. Yeah, I think I think that's right. So let's then turn to what the the broader lessons that we can draw from this for, you know, because you when when we were chatting about this episode on Twitter, you had sent me their border militarization paper, but then some days later we're like, I think there's actually a lot more to this that ties into the themes of of reimagining liberty. So can you go a bit into those lessons? Yeah. So I think that one way in which this potentially ties into the themes of reimagining liberty is that I think a lot of libertarians have sort of defined their libertarianism, one, through a set of strategic alliances associated with fusionism, as well as to some extent the paleo strategy, that developed throughout the uh, 20th century. And so these alliances tended to make libertarians prioritize their points of agreement with uh, the right and deprioritize their points of agreement with the left. And so one consequence of that, for example, is that issues like opposition to immigration restrictions got relatively deprioritized. And if the actual implementation of immigration restrictions has a lot of implications for human liberty, not just implications related to the direct question of whether migrants can cross borders, then that's going to be something that um, is a rather unfortunate deprioritization. It's not just a deprioritization, though, because it's there's also a framing issue, because it is the case that when you look at libertarians arguing in policy circles about immigration, overwhelmingly the arguments that they're making are economic, are this is immigrants are good for GDP, they're good for innovation, and and then the corollary of it is, and they don't do these various bad things that conservatives think they do. They don't radically change the culture. They don't increase crime. And so even where immigration is not downplayed as as an issue of concern, it is it's talked about in a way where it's very clear that the chief audience, the chief intended audience is conservatives. Yeah. I think that's right. And I think that part of why that's a problem is well, who the who they're making their audience and who they're reaching out to for allies potentially limits our coalitional capabilities. But another part of the problem, as you noted there, is just focusing on what the direct consequences of immigration are and just focusing on arguments drawn from within the economic literature um, sort of blinds people to insights from other literatures. So when we look at the border militarization literature, most of it is from outside economics. The work that I'm doing and the work that I've done with Chris Coyne is um, with is within the economic literature, but most of what we're drawing on in terms of the pre-existing literature on border militarization comes from historians and sociologists and political scientists. Um, so, for example, uh, Timothy J. Dunn has a book on the militarization of the U.S.-Mexico border that he released in the 1990s, um, and uh, that book's really good. It's a book by a sociologist, right? And so if most libertarian policy analysts and academics have economics training, but not sociology training. And if even worse, there's a tendency to dismiss other social sciences as soft or squishy and to ignore some of the qualitative evidence that they bring to the table, then you're going to miss qualitative changes in how the state exercises power. And so you're going to be able to do a lot of really good and valuable research, right? I think that the research on the effects of immigration on growth and the effects of immigration on wages and uh, immigrants' relative rates of uh, crime. All, all of this research is good and important research. And especially the points about the economics of immigration are, I think, really important because it shows part of why we need to prioritize immigration, because the amount of harm that immigration restrictions do both to prospective immigrants and to the rest of the world's population is enormous because it's stifling human productivity. But it's also important how the actual implementation of immigration controls 
alters the state's exercise of coercive power. And while that can be understood through the lens of economics, right, what Chris Coyne and I are doing in our paper, for example, is straightforwardly public choice economics. Um, but while this can be done through the lens of economics, until now, most of the work on it has been done by sociologists and historians and political scientists. And the insights they have, I think, are really important and have a lot to say uh, that is really relevant to libertarianism and that hasn't been incorporated in libertarianism, I think, in part because of the disciplinary boundaries within the academy and how those disciplinary boundaries have become correlated with ideological boundaries, right? There's a fair number of libertarian economists. There's relatively few libertarian sociologists, right? The main one who comes to mind is Fabio Rojas, who's great, um, but who doesn't specifically work on uh, this. He's very passionate about immigration, but most of his research is on social movements, which is also important. I think there's too a – not even just within the narrower disciplines, but a a way that this traps a lot of libertarians in policy thinking as as the the most important both vector for persuasion and vector of change that you know there are there are lots of ways to make the world freer and to grant people more autonomy than getting Congress to pass laws or getting regulations changed but this going back to the building up of human capital like if if your entire focus is in training in policy and then is in talking to policymakers then you're going to begin to see every problem as a policy problem or i mean a lot of these problems are policy problems but you're going to see policy change as the most effective way or the the most effective way to persuade on it and it it reminds me of when I first went to work for Cato, I was in the break room um, and ran into an an economist um, who was one of the, the more high-profile economists and one of the top, like just absolutely brilliant economist at Cato. Um, and he asked me what I did and I said I ran libertarianism.org. And he asked me what that was, and I told him it was you know a resource for exploring like the intellectual history and foundational theories behind Cato's policy. And he he looked at me confused for a second, and then said, "I understand that there are people who do that kind of work, meaning like philosophy, intellectual history, but I don't understand why." Um, and and it was striking because there is this like what matters is is policy analysis, but the the, the movement for liberty didn't grow out of policy analysis. No, it grew out of philosophy and ideas and moral cases. So whether that was the levelers or the abolitionists looking for you know individual freedom and freedom of conscience, or you know that whether we think the founding fathers were libertarian or libertarian or liberal adjacent or not, like let's like that the American Revolution was inspired by. The ideas of Locke, not policy papers, um, and and so it does seem like this this focus and this building of human capital in this one area means that we're potentially not making the kinds of arguments that historically have been persuasive enough to you know actually change the world as opposed to changing some policy on the margins. And I don't want to I don't want to say that like policy is unimportant because obviously like. The government has a lot of power over our lives and a growing amount and getting it to change policies in a positive direction can have an enormous impact. But I think potentially one of the reasons we've seen less of a libertarian drift is because we have we have emphasized the policy change to the exclusion of so the immigration immigration is like to me personally i don't care if immigrants boost gdp it's awesome that they do right but like keeping people on one side of a line drawn by you know governments or nationalists at some point is immoral um and it's it's harmful to them and even if they come over here and they don't contribute at all like they still it's it's immoral to keep them over there but we tend to downplay that because we are like we get stuck in this policy framing of everything. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I also think that one problem with the policy framing aspect of it is if you look at 
some of the theories that libertarians do have training in, but I think may insufficiently apply, like look at public choice, right? The policy makers and the people with power over policy have a lot of incentives to continue doing the sorts of destructive and oppressive things they're doing. So limiting yourself to just trying to influence those people, I'm not saying you can't make change on the margin there, but that's going to be a more limited conversation that people can participate in. And there may actually be ways to expand human freedom that are outside of that, right? Like Uber and Lyft didn't just lobby the government to move away from a taxi medallion system. They actively engaged in entrepreneurship in defiance of that existing institutional arrangement. And then once it was an active, ongoing uh, type of commercial activity that was happening, they essentially like dared the government to stop them and the government didn't because that would be costly. And similarly, you had mentioned like the abolitionist movement, right? It's not as though abolitionists were just, you know, writing white papers and lobbying for these things. And it's also not as though they were just doing moral suasion, though they certainly were doing that. They also were directly defying the government in various ways, right? Whether that's actively aiding slave revolts, as Lysander Spooner called on people to do in his um, essay on a plan for the abolition of slavery, um, or, you know, actively helping slaves escape through things like the Underground Railroad, encouraging jury nullification and actively engaging in jury nullification when it came to uh, essentially jurors blocking enforcement of the Fugitive Slave Act. And so there's all these points at which we can directly help people evade unjust power and control. And that type of direct action, I think, gets underemphasized when you have a movement that largely consists of people who are solely thinking in policy terms. Um, and so I think that's an arena in which the radical left, especially the anarchist movement, actually is acting in a set of ways that are more consistent with both libertarian ethics and with a libertarian analysis, or at least a public choice descriptive analysis of how states actually work, um, than the actual libertarian movement is. Because the libertarian movement has done a lot to cultivate a set of skills and human capital related to policy analysis, and that tends to put a set of blinders on people that makes direct action something that's outside the scope of what people are considering as a viable mode of action moving forward. So what do you say then to the, the, the say, DC libertarian or the person who is focused on, on policy change who says, oh, yeah, yeah, you've talked about like direct action and definitely like individual activities can help people, but your – all you anarchist people out there, you've done your marches. That hasn't changed anything. You know, it's the because it, you're being ignored because the marches aren't talking to the policymakers. They're not leveraging this stuff, and so they might be disruptive in the same way that the 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 George Floyd protests were were huge, but not a lot came out of them because the actual people making the decisions, whether that was at the city level or at the state level or the federal level, where they could have you know passed laws to to change things just kind of ignored the marches and they petered out and so the real the real action remains in in persuading those people who can with the stroke of a pen institute large scale changes yeah so i think that there's room for a real division of labor um here and so i'm not saying that it's unimportant to try to influence policymakers and i think that's valuable and i would also say that the marches themselves aren't really what I mean by direct action. So sometimes people use direct action to mean any sort of like grassroots social movement activity. Whereas what I mean by it is more directly acting to change something rather than seeking, uh, rather than asking an external decision maker to change it for you. And so the sorts of things that are happening within these movements that are more direct action would be things like people physically stopping ICE from arresting someone right? Putting their bodies in between the ICE agents and people they're trying to arrest. Or people during a protest directly de-arresting someone, like grabbing them from the cops and uh, preventing the cops from arresting them. Or potentially people engaging in cop watch activities where they're directly filming police. And so that presents a set of a, a type of evidence, right? Um, and a sort of witnessing that potentially changes police officers' incentives in the moment. Um, so these sorts of activities 
Um, they may be less effective for changing policy because you're right, policymakers can largely ignore them and the real change might happen when people are in the room with policymakers making arguments in language that the policymakers find uh, appealing. But they have the potential to, for the individuals who are facing the brunt of state violence, protect those individuals from particular acts of state violence. And I think both things are important. So I think the key thing, and also another form of direct action, of course, is directly engaging in forms of mutual aid or charitable activity that assist people on the ground who are suffering. So people like activists with no more deaths going into the desert um, along the routes that the Border Patrol has coercively diverted migrant stores, which are very dangerous routes, and leaving water there so that people survive that journey, right? That has a concrete marginal benefit of some people who wouldn't survive surviving, and so I think that sort of stuff is important because while the policy ought to change and it's desirable that it does change, in the meantime, people are directly living with the violence of the state and the boot of the state like on their necks and assisting those people or directly fighting off the state agents who are engaged in violence is important. And I'm not saying everyone has to do that. I'm not even saying that I actively participate in that, but simply that that's one element of this sort of division of labor among activists that can be underrated if you're just thinking about what the policy is and not what are the actual relationships between people and how do we make those day-to-day relationships better. It seems like it's almost a lot of libertarians not taking the lesson of another argument that libertarians make quite frequently, which is the voting versus charity argument, where we'll say you know people think that going that their vote is how you change the world and how you you know discharge your duty to others and so on but your vote is you know let's just say not as likely to change the world as you might think uh, but instead like if you the the money that you put into driving your car to the polls each year if you donated it to the against malaria foundation could have saved one or two lives or you know however much it is it's it doesn't cost much to save a life through the against malaria foundation and so saying to people you know all of you are like we should tax billionaires we should do this we should change these policies and and the libertarians are like just you know you should be giving instead to the against malaria foundation what you're saying is a version of that but in this case a lot of libertarians come down on the other side of it which is to overemphasize policy i want to say engagement because change like if you can affect actual policy change, then that's amazing. Like if you can, you know, like that can have a real effect, but it's, it, there's a real question of how much of an influence this stuff actually has on the direction of policy versus sentiments in a reactive public. And, you know, like, I think this was, we saw this, it's apotheosis with the Trump administration, which was a presidential administration that was just very clear that it didn't care about policy arguments like at all. It was like baffling for DC because DC was a place where people were used to, you know, like the administration changes. Now we can get people in and we can be doing recommendations. And Trump was just like, I don't care about that stuff. It's all id. Um, And so, yeah, that there is this, that focus takes away energy from places where if liberty is good for something, it's good for like, it makes people's lives better. And, you know, and if we can be making people's lives better in these actions that may also have an impact on policy like it may be like the uber is a good example of that of that you know basically civil disobedience you know they just got fined and they stood up to it and eventually the policy changed and like you said that wasn't about lobbying but that this kind of traps us in that thinking yeah exactly and probably the best articulation of this argument by the way is a book chapter by billy christmas and jason bias um, called methodological anarchism which was published in uh, the routledge Handbook of Anarchy and Anarchist Thought. Very expensive book, but I, you could probably find the um, essay somewhere on the internet. And the basic argument that uh, Jason and Billy are making there is that even if you're not an anarchist, there's something anarchists do that is different from how most other people think about politics and policy, um, it, which is that anarchists officially agree basically on what public policy should be. That is, there shouldn't be public policy. <laughs> but there, at, because of that, their day-to-day focus is mostly on 
how do we actually relate to each other as human beings? And what can we be doing differently that will facilitate more just or more free or more egalitarian social relations or more rights respecting social relations or whatever else the case may be? And so there tends to be within anarchist communities a lot more emphasis on this type of direct action um, to directly implement what you see as your political project. Um, and I think whether people are anarchists or not, they can learn from that focus on directly enacting change. Um, and I think there's a lot of benefits to that. That doesn't mean no one should do policy, right? The people who are at DC think tanks have cultivated a lot of specialized skills related to policy analysis. And so it might make sense for them to continue doing that work. Uh, but that does mean that they shouldn't see it as the sole extent of how people make change. And it might also mean that some of the wages that they earn through that should be donated by them to things that are trying to make change in other ways, whether that's donating to the Against Malaria Foundation, Give Directly, or Give Wells Maximum Impact Fund, or donating to No More Deaths, or some sort of bail fund, or some other organization that's directly assisting people who are defying the state. Is there a worry with that approach, though, that that work that can work on the margins? Uh, you can you can pay someone's bail. You can reestablish a path across the border. Uh, these these other things that the state doesn't want you doing, but if you do it enough, you know, like so the Uber thing, like Uber stood up and eventually it won, but. On big issues, can't that only ever work in a minimal approach? Because if if enough people are doing that, the state is going to be like, okay, I'm sick of this. Um, I, I let you get away with it when it was little. But now that it's big, I'm cracking down and I'm the one with guns and you haven't changed the policy. And so I'm allowed to use the guns and I have a lot more than you do. So yeah, that's a real possibility. And I think this is why I'm not super prescriptive about what set of tactics everyone should be using. I simply think on the margin, more people should be doing direct action than are currently doing it. But I think that some effort to influence policy, whether that's through um, through protest movements and writing about the general moral arguments, which can potentially shift public opinion in the long term, or the more wonkish sort of direct writing of white papers, testifying before committees, uh, doing things within elite circles... I think both of those have a place, and that's precisely because while we can render government policy less enforceable on the margin, it's still the case that as long as the policy exists and the state has the type of power it has, they always have the option of violently and coercively starting to enforce the policy more harshly in response to people's disobedient actions. Then how do we go about breaking these feedback loops? Whether it's the it's the border militarization for an intervention one or the broader ones that we're seeing, because essentially it's in a lot of these cases, it's not that someone is like, I can get these, I can get these drones or I can use this tool, even though I know it's not the right one for the job, even though I know it'll hurt people, but you know, I have ulterior motives. In a lot of cases, it is simply like just like that the policy scholars arguing that their policy area was what explained the financial crisis, like they believed it because they're trained to think about things within that perspective. And so they were genuine in that sense. And the people offering to use the drones are being genuine. And the people focusing on policy change exclusively over direct action are being genuine because it's what they know. So you're kind of asking people to change their psychology, which is awfully hard. So are there are there mechanisms we can use to as lessen the impact of these feedback loops? That's a good question. So I think that one thing that can be done is actively engaging with people in both the general public and in policy circles to make affirmative arguments for peace and freedom, right? So these feedback loops are largely loops of people engaging in tactics and tools that involve coercive social control and that substitute highly coercive and violent or uh, surveillance-heavy means for means of interaction that would be more peaceable ways of resolving some of the same types of issues. So I think that really hammering home arguments for peaceable social relations and arguments for 
a presumption of voluntary interaction can be helpful in changing where people's moral presumptions are and potentially seeing that some of these approaches are actively harmful. Because right now, I agree, the people doing it probably don't believe that these approaches are actively harmful. They probably believe they're doing the right thing. But large-scale public discussion that potentially shifts those presumptions could be helpful. And then the other thing to do is to actively model various forms of peaceful social relations through our own lives, the type of action we engage in, and for those of us who are writers or scholars or public intellectuals, write about those ways of doing things. Because I think a lot of people choose these techniques of social control because they believe it's the only way to achieve some desirable set of ends. They believe it's necessary in some way. And part of that is because of a sort of status quo bias combined with this being, I mean, we've all lived in a statist world for a very long time. There are forms of voluntary association that are happening within the context of a world scarred by violence. But a lot of the most visible stuff on the news is people addressing some set of social problems via coercive command and control means. And so I think it's important that people see alternatives and hear arguments for why those alternatives can work and can scale, because a lot of people may not have some direct moral preference for the coercive means, but they think, well, the alternative is disaster, the alternative is Hobbesian anarchy, a war of all against all. And if that's what I believed the alternative was, then I also would hold a different set of views than I do, right? And so I think a mix of some people directly modeling how peaceful social cooperation can work better than you think by trying out the creation of new projects to address hard problems through voluntary association is one thing. And then those of us who do more that involves specializing in writing or speaking, uh, really highlighting the potentials of voluntary association and of peaceful conflict resolution. I think that combination of things can potentially shift people's tacit presuppositions in a way that can shift things over the long term, right? In the same way that a long struggle that, you know, started with people like Adam Smith making arguments about free trade and then that getting popularized and people like Cobden and Bright taking that up within the policy space and making broad moral arguments that changed trade policy over time. And similarly, a, a combination of moral arguments, direct action and, you know, overt social and political conflict changed, you know, slavery and ab abolished slavery, at least its dominant form, right? So I think, I think there's a lot of different things to be done, but the core thing and this might be me deploying some of my human capital as an academic and saying, oh, yes, the thing I do, big ideas, is a big part of what's important, right? So I might be biased in favor of this type of conclusion. But changing people's tacit presuppositions, both through proof of concept, through your own interactions in the world, and through writing and speaking about uh, how things can be different than what people's tacit presuppositions would make people think, um, I think that's one way to potentially shift things. Thank you for joining me today on Reimagining Liberty. If you enjoy the show, consider becoming a supporter. You'll get all episodes two weeks early and also be able to join our Discord community, where you can discuss episodes with me and fellow listeners and participate in our fun new book club. Just click the link in the show notes to learn more, or head to reimagininglibertycom slash subscribe. Mm -hmm.